Now, before Father Dave sits down and puts his microphone on again, is there anything we need to sort out? Should we fire him? <laughs> no, we can't fire him. <laughs> we, we'd be so- <laughs> <laughs> Got it. We, could, we could read all these books while in isolation. Really? What's, what's he got that we don't? Who's volunteering to do the reading? <laughs> I mean, I'm bad at it. You're awful at it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where three grown men discuss at length away from the microphone whose microphone is actually the best, both for sound quality and sheer good looks. Welcome to today's episode. Gentlemen, how are you? I've got an alternative introduction. You would. Welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where a priest, an engineer, and a walkie-talkie walk into a bar, and the barman says, you guys should do a podcast. I've been working on it all week. Did I rush it? I liked mine. (laughs) Thanks for referring to my job as the walkie-talkie. I'm doing great. (laughs) So... uh... I, I, I haven't come up with an alternative intro, uh, but yeah, life is going well. But you do want t-shirts. Yeah, we were just talking about uh, Sons of Thunder merchandise. I mean, not, not that I'd wear it because I always wear the same clothes every day of my whole life. Well, we could make it like brown and white. Yeah. We, maybe we could make a white Sons of Thunder t-shirt and it says Sunder Thunder on the tag. In white. Or it's like white writing on a white t-shirt. <laughs> then, I could, then, then I could wear it. How about on the side of your glasses? Challenges out there. Ooh, okay. It's the only advertising space f- available on Father Dave. <laughs> <laughs> we can work on that. So, Father Dave, if you want to give us a quick rundown of what we covered in the last episode, because we are currently doing a four-part series on the gospel. And last week we began with... Well, so the four-part message we of the gospel begin well. was uh, basically the world was created good. So coming from this idea that whenever you ask a Catholic, what is the gospel message? They say something like, be nice to each other, be loving. But actually the gospel message is a whole lot more glorious and beautiful than that. And basically takes us through the whole story of the Bible that the world was created good. Sin came in and something went pretty bad. And then God sent a savior. And then we were given this glorious promise of new life. And so therefore we're up to part two. Being sin. Something went bad. The fall. Yeah. Yes. Now, in the discussions in leading up to this, Father Dave, you were also saying that, you know, most people would agree that, that there is something wrong in the world. And I think most of us have actually, at some point in our life, genuinely acknowledged that. It's not just we acknowledge it without thinking about it. We get to that point of it's not right. And I, I can pinpoint moments in my own journey where that was the exact thing that happened. A lot of people ask me, did I ever get to a point of being angry at God for what I was seeing when I was going around the world? Because I was seeing the worst of the worst. And I walked through what was the most dangerous place on earth at the time, being uh, Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador combined. There are a lot of things that were happening to me personally as well. Is it only the worst if you combine those three together? Are they you know, like individually, are they just pretty bad? But I think it's like having a delinquent, but you put three together. And they're like a gang. I'm just trying to gauge your, you know, your superlative just to make sure. No, it was what I, 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 <laughs> Marty, I didn't label them that. That was at the time regarded as the most dangerous place on earth. Right. As Great in, I saw it written. Probably most so, dangerous region. Region. Thank you. Not necessarily the most dangerous country, but the three of them combined. Mm. Certainly 
uh, it wasn't a, a happy hunting ground for good things. Actually, even a, a young lad had his, some guys tried to steal his mobile phone from him and he refused to let go of it. So they, they stretched him out and cut both hands off with a machete mm. and then removed his mobile phone from the hand they had cut off and walked off with. And that happened in the town just the day before I got there. Uh, so the priest wow. was warning me, if they want something, just give it to them. Don't, don't hold back on that. But there was a moment of, of not, not feeling that, okay, well, where is God in this? But I can't believe that we as a society have let it get to this point. There was an acknowledgement that almost everything that I was seeing was as a result of our decisions. How did we get to this point? How is it that all this bad stuff can happen? And most of us, I think, would you know, we've had bad stuff happen to ourselves, but then we also see the uh, consequences of bad stuff that comes from us. And we look back on it and think, why did I do that? Where did this come from? So how did it happen? How did we get to this point? In the beginning. That's all I got. <laughs> but we should talk about Genesis, the Genesis account of the fall. That seems like the logical place to start. I think that's kind of where his question was getting at. Genesis is <laughs> obviously chapter one and chapter two is where God creates the world. Two to two separate creation stories, mind you. I think that's always got to be pointed out and they're very different. But the, the key thing is that this temptation enters into the world. The, the whole story is kind of fascinating because so some people kind of say it's, it's this idea that when God created angels and humanity, because because we're the only creatures on earth that kind of span both the material world and the spiritual world. We've got like one foot in both camps there. In, in that realm, everyone kind of had to have a, a choice. Because we are rational creatures created in the image of God and able to love, we actually had to be able to make a choice as to whether we were going to love or not. So everyone had to have at least one temptation. So the angels were tempted long before we were. They were basically given a choice as to whether they wanted to follow God or not. The scriptures would suggest that a fair proportion of them decided that they would not serve. Uh, and so that's basically where we get angels and evil spirits because they're the ones who rejected God as opposed to angels who serve God. And this is the, is it Revelation, the see a third of the stars fall from heaven? That, that's one of the images that's often referred to. It's not obviously a, an explicit reference to the fall of the angels, but it's often been symbolically pointed to as being referring to them. The tail um, of the dragon sweeps a third of the stars from the heaven. Yes, yeah. Revelation um, 12, just saying. Because even if you go back to when, when St. Augustine talks about the creation account in Genesis, he would say that when it created the, the heavens, it was almost like a reference to the fact that the angels were being created long before the earth was created. Uh, but anyway, go back and yeah. read Augustine's City of God and you'll be able to read all about that. But anyway, so you've got the fall of the angels and then you've got humanity facing its temptation and it didn't go well. Hey, there you go. That is Marty holding up to the camera to us, Augustine's City of God. It is an inch uh, and a half thick. I don't know what I did when I bought this. It's been sitting on my shelf. Like, when am I going to have three years free to read that? I would have said at least two inches, actually. Well, I, 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 was, I was reading it on Sam's property last year. So when I had my sabbatical and I was living in this decrepit old caravan, which probably had more moss growing in it on the inside than it which did I on the Which I should outside. point out, 
I don't you, actually live in, I yeah. use it to store tools. That caravan. You were you were sleeping in that caravan. I was sleeping in that caravan. You are the toughest man I know. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, one of the skylights had blown off, so there's a hole in the roof as well. I found it. Did I tell you I found it? Yeah, you found it like the week after I left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the forest next door. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I take this month. poverty vow really seriously. No, it's just the vow of stupidity. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so when I was there in May, whenever it was raining, I'd be sitting in this caravan trawling through the second half of the City of God, which is an interesting read. But anyway, that's a sideline point. <laughs> that's all this podcast is. The whole podcast is a sideline <laughs> point. Sideline point. Pretty much. Yeah. Wait, wait, we were talking about Adam and Eve. That's right. So Adam and Eve get to their point of temptation uh, and it didn't go well, basically. That's how, yeah. They, they failed badly. Actually, this, this really fascinates me because the imagery often portrayed is Adam and Eve eating an apple, whereas that's not what scripture says. But actually getting to so what did Adam and Eve do, and to an extent it's, yes, they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. I did hear a few years ago a really fascinating explanation of Genesis through the eyes of theology of the body which tied in the book of Revelation as well into what they've actually done at that point. Have you heard any particular, actually, well, I shouldn't say have you. What I should say is, so what have you read, Father Dave, as to what's actually going on there in the Garden of Eden and with the relationship between humans, Adam and Eve, and God? Well, I think this is probably the, the centre of the whole story. Like people, I think we mentioned in a previous podcast about how there's all these, these, these massive battles over the book of Genesis. Is it historical? Was the world actually created in seven days? And I think we were saying very clearly that the key point of this book is actually about theology in which it's trying to tell us something about who God is and who we are. And so this part of chapter three in the book of Genesis is integral to that because this is where it says a huge amount about who we are. So, so the basic story of what you see is where Eve is tempted by a talking snake and you find many atheists who love to make fun of the scriptures because of that part of the story. The authors also know that it's a stupid idea of having a talking snake as well. Like it's not as though this is a new idea that the modern atheists are the first people to come up with that. The whole idea is that it's, it's trying to point to us more about who we are rather than the other sort of details. I did though. This I only only last week I read. Actually, Marty, was this a part of the Exodus thing that we we're doing? Exodus ninety. Well, probably if you read it in Genesis, because that's what you're reading. It is, yeah. But, I, but are you going to have to in the, get a little bit I, further I through the story for further. me to say if I've read it? <laughs> but the the, the 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 Hebrew word that is used to describe snake equally would describe uh, a dragon or a monster. Uh, mm. And there is actually another word that is used more commonly to describe a snake on the ground. Mm. This yeah, is very much that. a figurative word yeah. that is used in the original language that would describe a monster, uh, a dragon, something evil. Yeah. Which does sort of tie together the beginning in Genesis and the end of the Bible in Revelation. I think it's the same concept of the dragon and the serpent. Mm. But the basic heart of the temptation is that it's almost like the first time ever that they're looking at themselves. So, so Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that it's good, good to eat, it's delight to the eyes. In a sense, for the first time ever, she's seeing her own emptiness. Whereas up until now, 
every time she's looked at creation, she's just felt loved by God. Mm. So it's it's almost like their eyes have been opened, but they've been opened to the gaping hole that is inside them. You know, whereas up until now they weren't looking at themselves; they were just looking at God. Um, mm. And and I think that that actually speaks quite powerfully into the heart of what sin is. Like, sin is when we look at our own emptiness and we forget the God who's actually loving us. Every time you fall upon something of creation, you know, whether that is possessions, food, other people, and you're basically saying, I want you to fill the emptiness inside of me, rather than saying, you are a glorious gift of God, and I'm going to experience the love of God through you. That's pretty much the heart of where the difference between sin and virtue is really. Well, the, the word sin is a, from its original context, is an archery term. So to sin is when you fire at the bullseye and the arrow strays and you miss. Mm. Now, funnily enough, there is a completely different word for describing missing the target. Sin is when you are actually aiming at the bullseye, but it strays. It misses. They're saying, so pursuing some perceived good. Yeah. But not the biggest good. So it's not, yeah, it's not just the end result that's in error. It's the, yeah, it's the aim in the first place. There's a almost a, a, a misguided understanding of what will fulfill us. Mm. So can I just ask, I've just got a note here. The Genesis account, don't, don't eat this apple on this tree, can sort of look like an arbitrary. It's not an apple. Okay, well, a, a fruit, uh, an un, an unnamed fruit from, but from this particular tree, can sound like a bit of an arbitrary test of the Lord. You know, here you go, you got all this stuff, but just, 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 just so there's this one tree. Don't, don't have anything on that one, just because I said, you know. And I'm sort of asked. This is, this is really a question. <laughs> <laughs> so it can sound a bit like that, but I, I have an inkling that that's probably not really the meaning of it, but I don't know how to find out. Oh, I should ask Father Dave. And you're assuming yeah, that I know the Dave. answer. <laughs> <laughs> Crossing my fingers. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think that cuts to the heart of what so many people have been questioning about this story because on, on, on the surface, you look at this and say, okay, well, why is God testing them? You know, what does this say about God? You know, why is God basically setting them up for failure? If I was to say you can eat anything in the house but don't touch the chocolate cake, straight away your mind's going to go straight to chocolate cake. It's all you're going to think about. Mm. People, have, I suppose, always wrestled with that. and it says, it says nothing of what the actual purpose of the tree or the fruit was. Exactly, yeah. But from the name of it. Yeah. Well. As in the tree of the I, I take that maybe. back, yes. <laughs> yeah. But even then, you're still left with this curiosity of what's it going to do if we go near it. Mm. Mm. Whereas eating the fruit of the tree of life, that is very self-explanatory. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I think this is actually something that we, we don't tend to focus in that much on, is Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden so that they could not eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which would be eternal life separated from God. Well, the, 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 the image of these trees is fascinating because the, the, the whole Bible story starts with this encounter with the bad tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it finishes in the book of Revelation with the encounter with the good tree being the tree of life. Um, yeah. and, and in a sense, our whole experience has lived somewhere between these two trees. And so you've got a number of passages in, 
in the journey in between, which speak of the promise of the tree of life, that this kind of becomes an image of the resurrection. But the whole thing being that you can only get there through the permission of God. So when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, it says that God placed this massive angel with a huge flaming sword at the gate to make sure that no one could get back in. And anyone who sort of tried to force their way back into the Garden of Eden was going to end up getting pretty badly cut up. I was reading a, it was, it was a, a Protestant writer who talked about this in terms of how so often there, there, there are these sort of imitations of heaven that we're always pursuing. And in a sense, this is like us trying to force our way back into the Garden of Eden. And it always ends up badly because when we try and force ourselves back into that place of paradise, we end up just getting badly cut up. Um, he was talking particularly in terms of the whole issues around sexuality and you know people getting into de facto relationships and things like that, where they very, very rarely ever turn out good. So much of the trail of destruction we've seen in our society, I think, is very much because people have tried to get back into the Garden of Eden, but they haven't really gone through God's way of doing it. Mm. Uh, whereas God promises the tree of life to those who are prepared to actually follow the commandments and, and do it his way. And particularly at the end of life, we see that with a, a genuine fear of death, which we should do a, a podcast specifically on that one day. Mm. But we, we do everything called, we can. To... Called Sons of Thunder, the genuine fear of death. death. <laughs> <laughs> Put on the list. Uh, <laughs> that at the end of our lives, we do every Well, even when we're younger, we do everything we can to prolong life, to live for as long as we can. I've heard a few doctors now say we are not living longer. We're just dying longer. We're doing mm. everything that we can to stay yeah. alive, but the quality of life, we, we, there's a genuine fear of that death, but we'll do everything we can to avoid it. And in the mm. end, there's, it's actually creating other issues. Mm. So can I just pick up on a couple of times we've talked about maybe rules, started with my question about arbitrary rules. I've just been thinking about that while you've been talking. I've got sort of instructions and rules for my kids like, for example, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, you've got to get off your phone and your screens because you need to sleep in that. And I was just thinking about that. Just because my kids might not appreciate why that's important doesn't mean that it's not important. In our household, it's important that, you know, you get enough sleep. It's important that the next day is all right and, that you know, these things are pretty bad for you and they're pretty addictive and you'll sit on it for hours instead of sleeping if you had the chance and blah, blah, blah. And it probably looks in the same way, like, oh, you're just trying to make an arbitrary rule so that I can't be as happy as I otherwise would be if I was left to my own devices. But that's really not the bigger picture of what's going on. Mm. Yeah. Well, the bigger picture being that we have been given a choice for our actions and that through the exercising of that choice, not simply that we've been told that bad stuff will happen if you go outside, therefore I'm not going to ever let you go outside. You must stay in this house and uh, I'll take care of you. And then that's the most loving thing I can do. Mm. That we are given the opportunity to go outside and to confront what is in, in front of us. And unfortunately, more often than not, there are very strong examples of the decisions not being particularly good. They might've mm. been, might been fulfilling a, a particular goal, but then mm. they're a little bit short-sighted often, the decisions we make. And so there are consequences that are far from ideal. I should say that at night time. Do not eat from the phone of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a pretty good way to describe a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs>
but it really taps into this whole question of freedom because you know i think very much underneath this whole thing of sin is the desire to be free I remember years ago when I was doing youth ministry and we used to ask the kids in schools, what is freedom? And guaranteed every time they would say to do what you want, when you want. It's just a universal definition. But can I give some examples it's of that? It's a song, isn't it? What? Because I'm what you want free, to do, do, what you want to do what I want any old, any old time. time. So just, you don't remember the next line? No. No, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I was uh, once talking to a school group in Canberra and I was talking about this, trying to say like, imagine a chicken, you know, a chicken who is inside the pen surrounded by a fence, as opposed to a chicken that's outside roaming through the forest. The question of which one is more free. And I think it's, it's an interesting question because the, the chicken on the inside looks like he's in prison, but he's actually free to be a chicken, whereas the chicken on the outside is free to be lunch for a fox. Yeah. Yeah. We think of the commandments as being this restriction where actually it sets a boundary for us to actually be fully alive. There were guys on the, the walk around the world who exercised their freedom uh one t- on two occasions i woke up in the middle of the night with a guy trying to get into bed with me and they had chosen through their free will to do that i had to fight them off uh, i also had an attempted uh sexual assault i was mugged by four men i was beaten up in russia by two blokes who were apparently bored that was it <laughs> i hadn't done anything i hadn't said anything they saw me from a distance and they ran down they wanted to have a fight for the sake of it and just launched in there was also the saw someone news. walking through the snow and thought fight <laughs> they did reek of alcohol though i think their decision making was a little bit impaired this is our entertainment for today this is it so all of these things they were genuinely exercising their freedom so is that freedom is that complete freedom is that what it is but then i'm also reminded uh, abraham lincoln who once said that every person is entitled to do with the fruit of their labour as they please, so long as it in no way interferes with any other men's rights. Yeah, there's another quote from some US president or something saying, my my right to swing my fist ends before your right to not be punched or something. I didn't, that's not a really, that's, <laughs> I didn't quote that very well, but you'll have to look that one up. So, so I think we're, we're establishing that simply to do what, what we want to do massively impinges on other people's freedoms as well. And this is the dangerous thing of the modern morality, which is do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But you're the one who decides what you define as being hurt and you also get to define who is a person. So if I just say, well, you're not actually a person, I can do whatever I want to you. Mm. And I get to decide my definition of hurt, you know, because maybe you should just get over it and harden up and stop being such a whinger. That becomes the danger when we all decide what is moral and what is not moral. And I think that's basically where you start to see society getting to the limits of its ability to stay together, really. Yeah, but also it's not just other people, it's yourself as well. Your decision that might hurt someone else, probably all circumstances, maybe not but also hurts you in some way. And you sort of see that in extreme cases. If I start, I don't know, killing people and then 
ultimately when I'm a mass murderer, you can see that I'm like totally turned into a psychopath or something. So in extreme cases, it's sort of quite clear, but I think it's probably still the case for much more subtle. You could put an argument forward that it's still not clear because there are plenty of people around now who would really think that the answer to a lot of the world's problems, not every problem, but a lot of the problems, is something like socialism or communism. And, you know, if you read through the Communist Manifesto, it, there's some really some there's some great elements to it and there'll be a lot of people who are genuine proponents of that now but you look at the last 100 years of how it's played out and how that ideology has been used and you're looking at hundreds of millions of deaths so if you look specifically at russia at the ussr at china under chairman mao and then at cambodia under pol pot right you got Three areas there. And then currently socialism in Venezuela and the damage that's been done there under President Maduro and then previously under Hugo Chavez. So there are a lot of people right now who would push this as the answer. And what, government this... overreach? <laughs> well, they wouldn't say it that just, way, though, just, would they? But it just fascinates me. I even here in our pretty you know, secular Australia, you know, this with the lockdowns of the coronavirus, the government overreach really frustrates me. You know, you're not allowed to drive around. Why on earth can't I drive around? I'm a citizen. I pay taxes. I, you know, a policeman's <laughs> going to say I'm not allowed to drive or something. Like, because of what? If I stain my car, there's no... We live in anyway, such different worlds. I don't, I don't care because I'm on a farm. They say yeah, don't well, drive around. I never around. I wasn't I guess going to farms. But so... The point I'm trying to make is to extend that overreach into massive, massive overreach where a government gets to make all the decisions that you used to be. Like, it just makes no sense to me. So, actually, anyway, when I, when I walked through Slovakia, so for those who are unaware, Slovakia was under USSR rule. And I met a guy, got into a great conversation with him, and I asked him what it was like being in Slovakia now that it was free of the, uh, the communist rule. And he shook his head and said, they took all my dreams from me. He said, I had so many dreams growing up of what I wanted to do with my life, what I wanted to be, where I wanted to go, travel. And they said, you work in this factory. And he said, they took my dreams from me. Now, that fitted with the narrative I was used to. So, happened to be the next day, I met a guy who happened to be a, a Lutheran pastor. Not that that is of any relevance, uh, any relevance to this. Any relevance to this. But uh, this pastor, as we were chatting, I thought I'll, I'll ask him. It was just on my mind at the time. And he said the exact opposite. He said, I actually miss the communist days. It was nice. Just real security you didn't have any worries you knew exactly what you had to do you did your work you went home you're with your family and stayed hungry there was no pressure but there was someone making the decision now the point being that for the second guy it just so happened that the decisions being made were pretty close to what his ideals were for the first person yeah. Though it was so far off how that person who that person was and what their ambitions were but tough luck. Mm. It's been decided for you. Like as we were saying at the beginning, how 
when we talk about this second step of something went wrong, and, and this is pretty much the only part of the gospel message which everyone agrees on, even if they're not Christian. Like, like everyone knows there's something wrong with the world, mm. but everyone's got a different interpretation of how to fix that. You know, so, so when you talk about this idea of communism, they, they saw it as being the thing that's wrong is economics and class. And so if we can just fix that, then everything's going to suddenly become utopia. Uh, but it never has actually been achieved. But at the same time, we've had so many other ideas. Like if we just allow absolute freedom in terms of morality or in terms of economics, suddenly the perfect world will occur. But I, but I think what we, what we start to find is that some other group is always paying the price for mm. this group's freedom. I'd put a case forward that perhaps the only people who have successfully implemented a form of socialism have been the, um, who drive the, the horse buggies? The Amish. The mm. Amish. For them, it's a lot more than economics, well and truly. But that, that's the only but group I can think of. strict moral code surrounding that? Very, yeah, yeah. And it very much ingrained in their faith. Yeah. Mm. But of course, the, the difference in those two examples is that they're firmly grounded in a belief of, in God. And, mm. and that then shapes your understanding of the human person and your understanding of society. Whereas as soon and as you take... And your place within this. And family. Yeah. And as, as soon as you take God out of the picture, then the state becomes God and the human person becomes just a cog in the wheel. Yeah. So yeah, it becomes a whole lot more dangerous. Mm. So wasn't that, I, mean, I think it was you, Sam, telling me about some, I don't know if this is something you saw or some of the Simpsons or something, but some notes for like on a blackboard. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't on the Simpsons. No, someone had written it up on a blackboard. It was, um, it was something like five facts of life. The first few were absolute standard ones, like you can't avoid taxes, be nice to your mother, the sky is blue, communism has never worked. <laughs> if anyone wants sort of more background on that, read the first couple of pages of Rerum Navarum. How do you spell that? R-E-R-U-M space N-O-V-A-R-U-M. Papal encyclical for, I don't know, 50 years old or 70 years old or something, 100 years, I don't know. Well, you can find the web. I've just printed it off and I read it, right? <laughs> the first couple of pages was all about why the state controlling everything is bad. It made a lot of sense. In, in all of Russia there was only one person who offered me hospitality and he happened to be a Russian Orthodox priest. He, his wife and son offered me accommodation. I got to stay there for two nights. Brilliant. Amazing guy. He, he slammed the phone. Oh, he actually asked me the question, when, when did you last speak to your mother? I said, oh, it's been a few weeks. And he went and picked up his phone, slammed it in front of me and said, call your mother. Like, give her a call now and make, you know, let her know that you're doing okay. And he said to me, actually, he was a soldier. And when, when communism fell, he handed his rifle in and went straight to the seminary. Oh, wow. In terms of this whole idea of something went wrong, one of the greatest theological books ever written on this topic, I think would have to be The Cat in the Hat Came Back by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> that is quite a statement. There's a bumper Who, uh, sticker right there. Not, not many people know that uh, <laughs> Dr. Seuss studied at the Vatican for uh, best theology book. The cat in the hat is back. Maybe it's a bit of a father. Big Dave said. A <laughs> friend, friend of mine in Perth often uses this whenever he talks about salvation. But because the whole idea of the story being the sequel, it's probably one of the only examples where the sequel is maybe better than the original. <laughs> it's better than the movie too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't bother with the movie. Uh, the cat in the hat comes back. They all have fun. 
But anyway, at the end of it, there's this pink ring around the bathtub and the kids are freaking out because their mum's about to come home. And so they're like, look, just get out. We'll clean it. And the cat's like, no, 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 it's okay. I've, I've got you know, the, the answer to this. And he pulls off his hat and pulls out these little cats. I think he pulls out cat A, B and C. And they clean the ring off the bathtub, but end up moving it to the lampstand and the lampstand goes pink. And then he pulls out another three cats and then they clean it off there and then the carpet goes pink. And so every time they clean the mess, they actually just transfer the mess elsewhere and the mess gets bigger. Uh, And so by the end of the book, pretty much the whole house has turned pink, all the snow outside has turned pink and the kids are actually like fully freaking out, just saying, look, just leave, get away from us. And, and finally, in the end, he says, look, I've got one last little cat that'll fix it all. He pulls out the smallest, tiniest little cat, which is Cat Z. And this cat just comes out and just goes, boom, and cleans the whole thing. But it's this great analogy because humanity has seen this problem and we've tried to say, okay, we've got the answer. Okay, maybe it's an economic theory or maybe it is, you know, some new way of structuring society or maybe we just get rid of those people over there. And we seem to have cleaned the problem, but we end up moving it elsewhere and making it bigger. And I think basically this is what we're seeing down through the generations where every time we've tried to solve it, the next generation inherits something bigger and messier. So can I throw one at you, a very modern one? I want you to think for one second here. No-fault divorce. Disastrous. And think, and think about who it affects, maybe for the listeners as well, Think about who no-fault divorce probably affects more than anyone else. But when you go back through history, where did it come from? Now, do either of you two chaps happen to know where no-fault divorce came from? Who pushed it forward? No. Silence. Me neither. It was actually pushed by the, by the feminist movement because marriage was seen as the last bastion of male domination. And so no-fault divorce would allow women to be free. But as a result, we now have the greatest level of poverty amongst women who have been divorced. So it originally started as something that would free women. Mm. It has not solved the problem. Is marriage the only contract in this country that you can break with, like, no consequences? I think so. I work in construction. Like, we do contracts all the time and there's... You know, you can't just go, oh, I've changed my mind. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> this is a little bit anecdotal, but I did hear a lawyer in Sydney say that, that marriage is the weakest form of contract we have in Australia. Mm. Yeah. And, yet, and, and most of that weakness has come about because we have tried to implement freedom. Yeah, we've tried to break it and weaken it. But it, it, like mm. you say, in all these things, there's a small group that wins but often then a big silent group that loses. Okay, I've got, a, um, I've got a story about that that I remember my old man telling. I think it was at the zinc smelter where his old man worked. And there's a guy, I'm going to call him Fred. Probably, he's probably, the story probably started off with this guy called Fred. I suspect that wasn't actually his name, but that's just like a, a name you give a guy in a story, right? It's a big build-up so far. Yeah, yeah, get excited. Yeah. They didn't really know what he did at the smelter, but he... He went there every day to work and get paid. And one of the things that he did do is he cut off copper wherever he saw it and he'd go and trade it in. So he'd, like, if there was a tap that wasn't working, he'd cut it off, had bits of pipe and stuff. And he was notoriously known for 
pillaging by, the place. Sorry, by, by trade it in, you mean not to the company he would go No, on. no, no. He'd steal it. He, he made cut it off right. fittings. He was stealing. Okay. He'd cut it out of the smelter and then go and sell it privately to a trade wherever he could get hold of it. If it wasn't, if it wasn't actually headwater going or fluid going through it at that time, he'd, he'd dispose of it privately, right? He said one day he came back to his um, tool bag because he found something to cut off and found that someone had stolen his hacksaw. <laughs> and at that moment he realised that there was something very wrong with this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- actually, that's a good point because we have been talking about things regarding others. It's easy to see the faults in others and others' decisions, but we yeah, might really be a little, easy. It might be a little... Really uh, easy. <laughs> to see... The discrepancies in our own choices. What? Well, not not you, Mark. Yeah, no, I'm 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 agreeing on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely, like we we don't pay much attention to the damage left behind. You know, it, it always fascinates me how we mm. we are such harsh judges on everybody else, but we spend so much time excusing our own behaviour and saying, "Oh no, it's it's fine. No, no, no one got hurt at all." Have you ever seen those examination of conscience before going to reconciliation? The really in-depth ones? The old ones? The old ones, yeah. I started reading through one once. It was too long on the <laughs> Tick, 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 <laughs> tick, tick. That's enough material. That's <laughs> The priest walks past and snatches it out of your hand. <laughs> come on. I've, I've had people come to confession with like A4 page, double-sided, and you just think this is going to be a long confession. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's where you just want to Get say back to them. <laughs> you, you should see what I'm going to give you for your penance. <laughs> <laughs> Hands um, over a book of St. Augustine's The City of God. <laughs> Uh, read that in a leaky caravan. <laughs> Dovetailing into this, we are actually worse than we think we are because you only sort of discover how bad you are as you as you sort of progress through allowing Jesus to change you and to develop you and to turn you more like him. And, you, might, you know, the big things might get taken out of your life. It's only then when you're free to see this, the maybe smaller ways that you damage yourself and other people. If we truly saw the state of our souls right now, it will probably be a bit too much for us to bear. I think the only way you can face that reality is in the knowledge of how much you're loved. Mm. And, and I think that's the big thing that holds people back from real mm. conversion. If you're not convinced that God is loving and merciful, you're always going to play the victim or be blaming other people, trying to prove yourself innocent. But it's when you, re- when you realise that God is actually merciful, then you can actually say, this is the truth, this is who I am. remember seeing a, um, like a, on the news a bunch of people outside a courtroom with placards saying, we want justice, we want justice. And all I could think of was just as a good thing. But imagine taking that to its extreme when you're standing in front of God going, no, I want justice. You say, I love you. I don't know. I really, really love you. You go, no, I want justice. The most important thing to me is justice. Mm. And and God could say nothing, but if you, if that's, if, if that's true, if that's the most important thing to you, then you can have justice. 
Marty, you've, you've, you've placed us in a really awkward position here, though, because I have, I've got things I want to say right now, but I'm also thinking about in my mind, no, that's the next podcast. That's, that's mercy, forgiveness. But it does open up the fact that every time we pray the Our Father, that's basically the contract we're making with God. Yeah, where we say, yeah, yeah. forgive us our sins based on how we forgive everybody else. One of the times, I think it might be Luke's gospel, when Jesus teaches that to the disciples, he actually emphasizes that in the next line. And he says, oh, yeah, just to remind you, the level of mercy you give everybody else is how much God will be merciful with you. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is a little bit scary when you think of it that way. God wants to be merciful to us. Can we actually outline what they Ah, what that looks like at a personal level. As I say, it's pretty easy for us to identify what's wrong with others, but that can be very relativistic in, in what's wrong with others and what's wrong with the world. But what, would the, what does the church actually outline as ways in which that sin actually, actually manifests? Just reminds me of that classic story by G.K. Chesterton, where... Uh one of the newspapers in, in London was trying to do a series on what's wrong with the world. And they were trying to get key authors to write articles to explain about what's wrong with the world. They wrote to GK Chesterton saying, can you please write us your response to this question? And he wrote back simply saying, dear sir, I am yours sincerely GK Chesterton. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he recognized what was wrong with the world is, is me actually. And I think that's probably the, the fundamental difference with the Christian story is that we're not trying to say the problem's out there, the problem's in here. Mm. And so when, when you're trying to say, okay, what does the church say is wrong? There's so many things that we do which are sinful. But I think what it comes back to is really that fundamental thing that happened in the Garden of Eden is that we wanted creation instead of the creator. We wanted to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. And we wanted others to worship us. Yeah, and, and then we end up in this constant battle fighting over who gets worshipped and who becomes the slave. Oh, I've never thought of it this way, but seven deadly sins you could put under those categories of, of us worshipping ourselves and others worshipping us. Hmm. So that vanity of sorts would be we want others to worship us, whereas gluttony was we worship ourselves. Yeah, or we worship creation. Or worship creation. They're probably better that way. Hmm. But I really think what it fundamentally comes down to is that we are made for love. The only thing that's actually going to satisfy it is that infinite love of God. And so this is why we're driven absolutely insane with hunger because we've right. tried to fill ourselves with something that can't fill us. Time for a, time for a C.S. Lewis quote because I've still got the quotes that I looked up before last week's episode. <laughs> I was going to say you've been holding on to this all that. I've been I've been waiting I've been waiting so to find a to find it in. Okay, me Christianity. <laughs> and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history: money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That pretty much sums it all up. <laughs> I got more. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically that idea that, that, that the old idea that there's a God-shaped hole inside of us and we can try and yeah. fill it with everything we want, but nothing will fit it unless it's God. Yeah, and we have been. I mean, let's come back to the Genesis story. Since Adam and Eve, we've all been trying to fill it with anything else that looks like it might fit for 
time immemorial. And basically I think that is the heart of conversion. It's, it's, it's when a person gets fed up with trying to fill it with other stuff. Some people learn that pretty quickly early on, you know, and so they realise there's no point in that endless chase of things in the world because it's just not going to work, whereas others are stubborn enough to keep pursuing it until they're 90. Mm. And it's only then that they suddenly realise maybe maybe God might fill that instead. I've got a quote for that too, C.S. Lewis. Me, Chris, oh, he's gone to the other hand. I've got, I've got the next one down. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on a thing and people. And, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Mm. I promise I'll do less research next time. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was just so quotable. Yeah. Whereas G.K. Chesterton, no. you just wished he got to the point. Really, just <laughs> 45 <laughs> pages earlier. Not walking around the room swilling your whiskey while you muse on what you're trying to say. And I don't mean... Gee, he loves that brilliant. Huh? He loves that particular line. And I don't mean... <laughs> As in, he's established something, but then he thinks, I know how people might take this or twist this. And so he's always adding in that, and I don't mean the way in which... So for those who have never read C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton... Start with C.S. Lewis. Start with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> if you're going to go for G.K. Chesterton, look up his essay on cheese. That might be a starting point. Yeah. And after that, go for his essay on uh, a defence of rash vows. That's always a favourite of mine. Of what? Rash vows. Rash vows. Rash vows. He's, you know, it's classic. He's basically trying to say that we've lost the art of really loving because loving is the art of making a vow for the rest of your life and uh, trusting that you're still going to be the same person in 30 years' time who still wants to live by that vow. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. It's great. I think you said rash vowels, like consonants and vowels. Like, yeah, <laughs> but it gives skin irritation. What you said makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> You want to do a bit of a sum up? Yeah, might as well. Right, we're all um, we're all stuffed. Oh, sorry, you were going to sum up. <laughs> I think we mentioned in one of the previous episodes that you can't know the good news without knowing the bad news. Yeah. So, as much as all of this sounds really depressing, and no one wants to look at it, it's and going we're somewhere. By, well, we're surrounded by psychologists who just keep saying, you know, if we just think positively, it's all going to be okay. Maybe there is actually something about recognising that we're all looking in the wrong place. Mm. Well, you have to firstly, it doesn't help an injury to ignore it. It yes. requires rest. It requires tending to, and the actual tending to the injury can be a lot more painful than the injury itself at times. Like sewing up your finger after it's been cut off at a lawnmower. Yes. Oh, yes. Marty, how'd that go? Hurt. Hold up your four and a half fingers for us. That transfers. That transfers all to a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to give some personal examples, but I think yours suffices. I I was going to say when I dislocated my shoulder, putting it back in was more painful, but I think you you get this one. Yes, so one one. So this is going somewhere. This is a four-part series. And uh, in the the next podcast, we will be looking at God's response to our brokenness and to our attempts to fix it ourselves 
and going in another direction and excluding God in the fix. So that'll be the uh, the episodes to come. But it was very important just to focus in on not so much the good, the bad and the ugly, but just the bad and the ugly. So there's maybe a taster for the episodes to come. Do you remember watching Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen on YouTube because it's not on TV anymore because it's not like the 60s or whenever that was on TV? Um <laughs> was talking about different religions and talking about the difference between Christianity and basically everything else is everything else is all about this set of rules, rules of what you can do to elevate yourself to God. And Christianity is fundamentally the opposite. It's what God has done to make himself available to us. Mm. So I was distracted. My dad just walked through. It sounded really deep until halfway. Well, I, I, can't, I can't do that soliloquy again. The difference between the word do and done Every other religion is about what you have to do. Christianity is about what God has done. Yeah. 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 So I'll go back to my previous sum up, which was really only half the story. We're all stuffed without Jesus. Stay tuned for episode three. Part three, not episode three. Let me do that again. Stay tuned for part three. Doug, yeah, one more time. One more time. Come on. Stay tuned (laughs) for part three. Oh, Dad. <laughs> Marty, would you like to end us in prayer? Yes, I would. Cue the music. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, I was about to, all I can think of is thank you, Lord, for these your gifts, which of your goodness we're about to receive. I'll try another one. Thank you. <laughs> You know I'm not um, editing this out. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for thank you, Lord, for our uh, time here together. Please bless us and our families, and please bless our listeners. Lord, pray your blessing upon us and all those who are listening. Pray your blessing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Yeah, but like, why become a helpless child? How does that? Because even that, like, we we talk about how the cross saves us, but how does the incarnation save us? Well, why don't you just like go and kill all the bad people or something? Because that'd be killing everyone. <laughs> Might stick this at the end of the podcast after the prayer, as a like an add-on. Awesome teaser. Reminds reminds me of a quote from Mere Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have to wait till next week to find out. <laughs> 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 <laughs>